Welcome, everybody, to New Polities Podcast. This is the second episode of Political Saints. Is it the second? It, or is it the third? It might be the third. Welcome. One to of those. The- <laughs> it's it's one of the it's 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 one of the episodes. Maria, thank you for uh, compelling me to include Saint Catherine of Siena on this list. Yeah, you're welcome. She is the best. Yeah, I have come to learn that. Um, prior to this, I just thought that she was that really nice floating mystic that gave out alms in abundance and sometimes hit her head on the top of a chapel ceiling because she levitated so high whilst praying. And now I've learned that she was intent upon going to war with the infidel dogs, <laughs> as she put it, uh, which we will get into. But yeah. we have I don't think... It's, it was actually kind of a proper misunderstanding on my part to only think of her as that internal life person because if you don't understand that, you don't understand her political activism. Right, yeah. you want to call it that. So, I mean, St. Catherine's really unique because she was a mystic, but then like she wasn't cloistered. Mm-hmm. She wasn't off by herself. She was for part of her life, but she was so politically active and uh, had influence with like so many politicians and mercenaries and the pope and she was just like this little nobody from siena and a woman and that really didn't happen at all unless you happen to be like a queen or were married to someone with a lot of political power mm-hmm. um so it is like she's she's just a bunch of paradoxes like all in one person like how is it that you can have this really intense mystic saint i mean she's a doctor of the church so it makes sense that like when you think of her you think of her interior life because mm-hmm. that's what like the church has, I don't know, highlighted about her. Mm-hmm. But then she had this really, really active political life. And I think that doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Like, oh, like if you're a really good churchy person, then it means that you step out of the way and politics isn't something that you are concerned about or care about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you found proper detachment from the daily news, something right. like that, and realizing that um, the contemplative life is actually wedded to the active life. That mm-hmm. The one is building up a source for the other um, by which you can actually go and be a fire of love for the world. Right. So that's what we see in her. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give us kind of a quick background on her life? She died when she was only 33. 33. It's crazy. I mean, same time as her beloved Lord. Oh, yeah. So, oh, that was so intentional. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She died on purpose then, didn't she? Yeah. <laughs> um, so Catherine was the youngest of 25 uh, from this little small town, Siena. That's slightly larger than my family. <laughs> like just 24, actually. Yeah. Just, just 24. <laughs> uh, a lot of them actually um, passed away. So she didn't have 25 siblings. But she had 12, um, right? I'm not sure the amount of kids that survived childhood. I mean, mm-hmm. that was just pretty typical for the time. She was actually born a twin. And her she twin... ate her twin. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's what my friends say. Yeah, he was born, his, his twin didn't survive, and he always says that. I thought, that's kind of... Dark. A little bit dark, bro. Yeah. <laughs> she didn't eat her twin. Her twin just didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of wonder like what that might have done for her psychology mm-hmm. as a kid, like just being aware, like... I made it and my twin didn't like, I don't know. It just makes you question things. Yeah. And one thing that Catherine or Catherine, that Sigrid Onset mentions in her biography is that Mm -hmm. Catherine was the one that was breastfed and probably the one, the only one of the children that actually was by, by the mother too. So anyways, just to drop more into interesting kind of psychological seeds there. Um, anyway, so um, she was, she was like the baby Mm -hmm. of the family. She was just beloved by her mom. Um, but she definitely had particular graces as a young child. She was just kind of uniquely pious. Like every preschooler, like they always have their thing that they're really interested in. Like some are like trains, trains are everything. (laughs) Dinosaurs are everything. The stars. (laughs) Like for her, like she would play these little pious games with her friends. Like, let's pretend to be nuns. Let's pretend to, like, practice ascetical practices. Like, let's pray together. Like, this let's is just... pretend not to eat breakfast by not eating breakfast. Yeah, that sort of thing. Um, so she just kind of had this natural, like, instinct or draw, but it wasn't, like, really that well-developed. Um, but she ended up having a really profound 
uh, mystical experience when she was six. Maybe not mystical. She just had a vision. She mm -hmm. was just like running through the streets of Siena after her siblings. And then she saw a vision of Christ, I think, wearing a papal tiara. And then if I'm remembering correctly, St. Paul was on one side and St. Peter was on the other. Um, I don't think they said anything. I can't remember if they said anything. But this was kind of like the beginning of her like really deep spiritual awakening. She was different after that, but people didn't really know why. Mm. Um, and then I think after that, she started a much deeper and profound uh, prayer life. She lived very close by to a Dominican church. And so she would end up going there all the time. And she was just drawn there more and more. Um, at some point during her childhood, like she, I think... I don't know if she like started like speaking with Jesus at this point, uh, but she definitely made the decision to be consecrated, like as a mm -hmm. consecrated virgin. Like, she wanted Christ to be her spouse. Right. Um, but all of this was like hidden. Like she was just kind of like the boisterous, like fun loving, like very pious, like awesome youngest child. Mm -hmm. And so her mom was really thrilled when she was getting of the age to like be married. And like she wasn't like amazingly beautiful but she had gorgeous hair yeah everybody and, comments on her hair yeah um so her mom was really excited to set her up with someone good mm -hmm. and so she tried and Catherine just like refuses and this her mom sounds like a really controlling person her mom never understood her her whole life like, they just have a very contentious relationship mm -hmm. um, like she just really wanted the best for her daughter and like couldn't understand that like her best wasn't Catherine's best mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, and so they kind of struggled back and forth of that for a long time. And then eventually, uh, Catherine cut off her hair. This really upset her mom. It's like, now you're done. Your chances are over. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't got nothing left going for me now. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Just my hair. <laughs> uh, but it, just kind of jump ahead in the, the story about her, her mom. Her mom was this controlling person. Oh, she, yeah. Uh, hated the fact that her daughter was um, called into the consecrated life. Mm -hmm. um, but her, and was actually quite cruel to her at certain stages mm -hmm. of it. Catherine always, like, particularly in the moments when she was cruel, when her mother was so cruel, played games. This is like oh, pretend yeah, as if yeah, her mom yeah. was the Virgin Mary, Mary. or Jesus her, 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 himself. So that she would serve her mom as right. if. Yeah. So this was mother. her mom's strategy. She's like, oh, like, well, like you, you don't want to be married and like mistress of your own household. Well, like try being a slave. <laughs> <laughs> See how you like yeah. that. I mean, really, she was treated like Cinderella, yeah. but she was just yeah. like, oh, my father is uh, St. Joseph. My mom is Mary and my brothers and sisters are the apostles. And she just did everything like so sweetly. I mean, they could not comprehend what was going on until at last she revealed this like interior secret mm -hmm. vow that she had made um, very much upset her mother. Um, but I think her father was a little bit more grounded and was seeing, Oh, we're not going to change her mind. Mm -hmm. um, so then mm. after that, no, keep going. Sorry. They allowed her to join. Um, well, the nickname is the Monte Yatas. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was like the cloaked uh the cloaked ones is right that what it's yeah called? like a third order dominican mm -hmm. you know from it seemed to emerge and i don't actually know the history of it i, sh I should have, but from what sigrid was suggesting in her book is that this was um more of like an organic movement of people who just of women that so loved yeah. saint dominic mm -hmm. that wanted to follow after his way um but couldn't because they weren't men to become friars and so right. this was um, something that I think had not yet received some sort of papal blessing at there, that time? Yeah, well, it's not really around anymore, mm -hmm. I think, unless like the Third Order counts, because mm. there were Dominican nuns at the time. Most of the Montayata, um, it's kind of like being a Benedictine oblate. Okay. Like you take vows, but they would actually take on habits. A lot of them were widows. Um, and so... Or, or you would do it like with your husband, like like both of you are now third order. Like you had to get his permission if you wanted to join, and then you would just live your life like entering into as much prayer as you could and um, like serving people in Siena. 
Um, but it was technically a third order and it was very scandalous to have like a young girl mm. join this because it's not like you're a young girl going into the cloister where you're away from all these distractions. It was a big risk for them because like, I don't know, like maybe this person is going to like grow up and realize like, yeah, actually I don't want to do this anymore. Mm. I would like to get married. Like that's a little awkward. Mm. Um, like everyone else here is widowed. <laughs> right. Um, or married. And, and, you, and that's kind of an interesting thing because she... At one point in one of her mystical um, experiences, goes through a real wedding ceremony with Christ Himself, uh, which which Mary um, oversees. Or I think or it was like instructs. an engagement. Was it? That's engagement. right. Thank you. But she receives a real ring, 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 and like as real as the ring on my finger. But yet she's the only one that can ever see it, mm-hmm. and so it's actually kind of fitting that she is just like the other women spoken for. You know, right. in the third order, she is as well. Yeah, but people weren't, mm-hmm. they weren't sure how how firm her intentions were. Mm-hmm. So it took them a little bit of time to figure that out. And then the other thing that was unique about this is because they're not, like, cloistered, they're not living together. Um, like, it made sense if you were widowed or married because, like, your household would still support you. And so the way that she, so she, like, joined this, like, third order kind of thing Mm -hmm. but then she lived at home Mm -hmm. and so what she did was she entered into her her room or her cell uh and for three years she just entered in contemplative prayer and she never left (laughs) like her family just didn't see her i mean she lived at home they didn't see her at all really unless like they opened the door but they would give her food and she was just in prayer uh and um yeah also like fasting and like her mom just like didn't really understand um but she was just so swept up into the love of christ i think this is when she like received her engagement ring with christ um and she was just praying for the reparation of sins and she was just so in love with with god and just i mean she was living a cloistered life she was seeking him in contemplative prayer Mm. and what she had no idea was what god had in mind for her next like she just wanted to like dive into the abyss of charity and just swim in that ocean of mercy forever and then one day god said to her all right so i want you to go out of your room and go to dinner with your family and she her reaction was just to weep <laughs> she's like no i don't want to leave uh, but eventually she realizes okay like god has different plans for me okay and it it began really simple like she just exits uh her room and starts like entering into family life again um eventually she starts like going out into the streets and serving the poor um, helping out uh, in the hospitals, um, serving the patients that nobody else wants to touch. So the beginning of her career was just doing good works, um, but at the same time living this intense mystical life. So she would do all these good works, but she would also spend so much time going to mass um, and uh, being in prayer in uh, the church. And eventually this this cause some attention for her because she would get swept up into her mystical prayers which used to be in private Mm. but now people were like seeing like ah this like girl's not normal like she just (laughs) received the eucharist and now she's stone still and like looks like she's seeing a vision of heaven and like people are like waving their hands in front of her face and like trying to poke her and she's not moving like she can't feel any of this she's just so swept up into prayer and so at that point she starts to to get attention yeah people suspect something <laughs> something might be going on here <laughs> so what's fascinating is like i mean a lot of people didn't trust her like they thought like she was fake mm-hmm. um and they didn't like um the followers that she was starting to get so she's a young woman and now like all these people are starting to flock to her and what she's doing is just telling them to go out and do these good works or um calling them to conversion like and she she was really just focused on sienna but it was like who's i mean it was the same reason that jesus was considered scandalous because he gathered like female followers to himself it's mm. like what are you doing jesus <laughs> <laughs> there's the same kind of reaction with uh catherine and the male followers that she was um garnering i guess um and then uh yeah like uh different um, members of the Dominican order or Franciscan order, like theologians who were very skeptical would 
like go and approach her to try to like trip her up to expose her as a fake mm. and they would just like walk away her devoted followers because um, like the things that she would say like she was never schooled she uh, never learned to read from anyone else um she was just at one point uh gifted the grace of reading, reading. <laughs> because she so wanted to be able to pray the office, office yeah but she and couldn't so, write she could only read <laughs> yeah, yeah right and it wasn't until like at towards the end of her life that she actually learned to write <laughs> it's amazing yeah <laughs> um, um and it, so it was a particular gift there one of the stories and one of the things that continued to come up in her in this biography that, that i read was that she that the theologians that came to her were often um, sent back with the charge to actually follow right. their uh, their um, their call to poverty. Mm-hmm. And so, whereas they might have one room in which they slept um, and another room in which they would read and write, they realized that that was actually breaking their their vow, their vow of poverty of actually possessing things exclusive to others mm-hmm. um and so they would have to give away their books and you know to the to the library proper they would have to give away the spare room their desk um and um and th- those were the things that were truly tripping them up because and, mm-hmm. and you can kind of imagine this in some regard i mean you could say like wow that sounds like they had very little but if you just you know thought about the things what what are the things that i cannot do without Getting rid of all the things that the you, little comforts, you, the little comforts is like, yeah, I can get, I can do that. But like the things that, like, they didn't really have to give away their whole heart because they were holding on to the things that they mm-hmm. cherished most, and that, and that is where the vow of poverty penetrates right into. Right, and that she was, she was saying, you know, you, you really have made this, this promise, this marriage, you know, already. Stick to it. Be faithful to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, just a lot of. Uh... I mean, like, I, I understand this vice <laughs> of becoming, like, intellectually, like, pompous. Like, oh, yes, like, I know all this theology. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, they experience a distance between their theology and their actual practice of radical poverty. And right. because, I mean, if you're around other people who are, I don't know, like, they're they're not really taking poverty as seriously. I mean, you're just affected by it. Mm-hmm. And so you start garnering, like, little comforts to yourself uh, until over time, like, you've just kind of lost the spirit of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those 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 stories are really fun to read about, how she just, <laughs> Catherine of Siena destroys theologian. <laughs> <laughs> nice, the meme that never was, but should be. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> So she starts. She starts to destroy theologians. Yeah. And um, you know, there's and of course, you know, within maybe just take taking just a moment to this, reflect on that. That um, you know, many saints in the church have kind of poked at this idea of study, and and Saint Francis in particular was known as being one who um, warned and admonished his followers not to be entrapped by it. Not that he didn't want some great. I mean, goodness gracious, his followers included. Bonaventure and right. John Dun Scotus. I mean, you don't get any sharper minds than than those. Um, but the idea for them was that theology was a handmaiden to the life of prayer. Right. You know, and if it was not enabling you to become holier, then it was actually something w- that was leading you to mm-hmm. damnation, and you shouldn't engage in it. Um, that even in the proper steps, the different modes of theology. Um, symbolic theology in which we are given the the words, the right words to use to be able to understand God. Proper theology in which we're given the ideas by which to think about God well and to and to and to construct you know logical patterns of thought to be able to know Him more accurately. Those are, again are nothing compared to the third way, which is the contemplative, which is contemplative theology, which is actually the type of theology that everyone should be doing. Um, and that we are ultimately called to. It's you begin there, you move into this kind of symbolic theology, proper theology, only to be able to get back to the contemplative mm-hmm. theology. And that's, you know, a big call that she is making to uh, to her new disciples. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So at, at this point, she's getting more and more uh, attention and like she's starting, I think, to enter into a little bit of the politics of Siena. Like, because she's concerned about people's souls, um, and she really understood uh, that, 
yeah, I mean, like all, all the bad politics like happen because of vicious people, right? And so, um, and she just starts converting them anyway, oh, you yeah. know, and they and they start flocking to her, like mm-hmm. you know, wealthy lord, like right. converts to her and just you know has to give away all of his property and gives her a place to actually set up. Um, her followers to actually have a place for them to gather and live together rather than just in homes. Or uh, I lo- love that story of the two uh, criminals being dragged through the streets, oh, yeah. you know, where they will be di- will they, they will be killed, but she comes to them beforehand and, and saves their souls, <laughs> you know, <laughs> leads them to Christ before they die. And so they give up the last moments of agony as a penance for their, for their life. For the few short hours they have yeah. to live, they become full penitents, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. So these, these things, you pull her further and further in, but she sees, as you said, that the major problem of the political plight is um, is, a, is a personal one, mm-hmm. that people are fleeing from God. Right. So she's just, she has an intense love for souls and whatever people come her way. Um, and so she starts, I think her political influence happens just because people are curious about her. Mm-hmm. Like some of the people who go to her are, are sent to her. Some of them are like frustrated by mm-hmm. what she's doing. They're like, like my best friend like used to like do what I was doing. And then he met this little Sienese woman and now he's not cool with the stuff that we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't like this. Like I need to go see what's up. And then they walk away exactly the same as their friend does. <laughs> um, Which yeah. is what they wanted anyway, to be united with their friend again. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, there's kind of three, these three things that really was on her heart. You know, and she mm-hmm. writes them often in her letters, and I'll kind of read them um, briefly here, and just from one of the letters. She, she, this one, this letter is actually to the Pope. So this is this is some years later than we've gotten into the story. This is this is Gregory the Eleventh, um, the last of the Avignon popes, and she says, she says, gives him th- th- this kind of tripartite charge. I tell you, on behalf of Christ crucified. It benefits you to achieve three chief things through your power. The first, uproot in the garden of holy church the malodorous flowers, which, however you say that, how do you say that word? Malodorous. Malodorous flowers, thank you. Full (laughs) of impurity and avarice, swollen with pride. That is the bad priests and rulers who poison and rot that garden. Ouch. Number two, she calls for, quote, your return to Rome and uplifting of the standard of the most holy cross. Let not your holy desire fail on account of any scandal or rebellion of cities which you might see or hear. Nay, let the flame of holy desire be more kindled to wish to do swiftly. And third, she says, Raise the standard of the Holy Cross. For as we were freed by the cross, so says Paul, thus raising the standard, which seems to me the refreshment of Christians, we shall be freed. We, from our wars and divisions and many sins, the infidel people from their infidelity. So this last call is to go on crusades. Right. So those three things, to to root out bad rulers and priests to root to return get the pope the return to rome when he was in avignon Mm -hmm. and to go on crusades right those are her become her objectives yeah her objections object (laughs) objections objectives and kind of almost obsessions like it is she knows that it's her holy goal like this to make this happen yeah i might i might back it up a little bit like how how is it that she like moves from siena to this because this is pretty i don't know global <laughs> yeah exactly no um, i think we should and um and i think it starts the way of explaining this is actually right from where we were were yeah, yeah. so uh, uh this is um i've got a copy of uh saint catherine of siena's letters and um the editor who pulled these together kind of has a summary of her life so i'm just going to read this because i think it uh this paragraph explains the transition mm. um into more influence 
Um, so in 1370 to 1374, her reputation and influence increase. A group of disciples gathers around her. Her correspondence gradually becomes extensive and she becomes known as a peacemaker. So um, like as she's like converting souls, people are asking her to step in places mm. or if there are places that she can't get to, she'll end up writing letters. And so she starts corresponding with like more and more important individuals in part on her own initiative and the initiative of other people and over time that correspondence starts uh, growing especially as she's making more friends in high places like because they've come and questioned her and then like returned back like her devoted followers um and so like as i, I think like priests like from like different towns have come to investigate catherine especially because she belongs to the dominican order and like they want to like mm. make sure that like you know she's not causing a scandal it's their order they have to take care of her if like she's actually insane <laughs> um but then like they they bring word of saint catherine other places so her fame starts extending her correspondence starts extending um at the same time her ecstasies and mystical prayer and unusual mode of life excite criticism and suspicion in may 1374 she visits florence perhaps summoned thither thither to answer <laughs> charges made against her by uh certain members of the order of her own order um uh she returns to siena to minister to the plague stricken so the plague ends up hitting siena and yeah she fearlessly takes care of them she meets at this time uh fra raimundo of capua uh her confessor and biographer her gradual induction into public affairs is accompanied by growing sorrow over the corruptions of the church so um, she's called to Florence because the Dominicans want to check her out. They're like, okay, she's good. Um, she starts caring for people uh, who are hit by the plague. She gets a new spiritual director. Her correspondence starts growing. And then um, she's, she's starting, she starts to receive invitations to go places. Mm. And eventually people figure out, like, this woman is a peacemaker. And there's something really powerful about the way that she is able to approach people mm. um, and actually get them to change their ways. Mm -hmm. um, and because like, you have all these city-states across um, Italy and there's a lot of contention between them mm -hmm. and then also contention between the city-states and the papal states. Right. Um, yeah, I I mean, that that's a whole... Like the political state in Italy at the time is really important for understanding yeah. um, where she's at. I'm not sure if I can explain it uh, the best, but I know that there's um, there's different uh, alliances uh, being made, um, mostly like a, a, the, the Papal League and the Anti-Papal League. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think one thing that's really helpful to realize, maybe to start off is um, our buddy Andrew has this idea part of the reason why someone like uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, but many other scholastics had such a clear vision of what good politics looked like is because during their lifetime, they were losing grasp of it. They were actively seeing the, the fall. And what you started to see instead was the rise of tyranny, real mm -hmm. tyranny, something that we might even more say like classically tyrannical, where mm -hmm. because there were there was not centralized power and because there was um, only really personal reign rather than administ largely administrative governance and um, and and you know classical offices of power, because there was mainly just a king in his court and those people declared mm -hmm. and did things whatever they wanted uh, and they started to change uh, the mode of living in a way that was for their own benefit rather than for others we can call that tyranny more clearly and mm -hmm. that's what's happening and particularly you see during the reign of pope um, boniface the the eighth uh, the, who was there simultaneously with the reign of King Philip 
the fourth, who was called the fair because he was a really pretty boy. Oh. Though he was also by his enemies, he was he was said, you know, you know, despite he's not really man and he's not really beast, he's actually a statue. He was he was so strong and and showed his power, and it was this intimidating, almost force that you couldn't do anything against. And and as and he used you know that disposition to to scare people into. Uh, to actually just doing what he wanted. Oh, I and should use that. Yeah, <laughs> you could get away with that, I think. Whoa! Uh, but, you know, so amidst many of the horrible things that Philip did, is uh, they included significant monetary debasement, uh, thieving from the pockets of many, starting new unjust wars, um, and then ultimately trying to uh, pull the... Uh, the arm of the of the pope to use the power his power to tithe or tax the mm. people to get more money so that he could go for for greater wars um the pope refused to do so he sent some italian men to go and beat him up ultimately they beat him to death he you know died yeah. not much longer <laughs> after that um and it was through this this incredible force that he ultimately brought the compelled the papacy to move from Rome and to Avignon. Oh, um, okay. I was wondering where you're going with this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so that all happened uh, about 60 years before okay, uh, Catherine, okay. uh, maybe a little less, 50 years before Catherine um, was born. And and things, be, the part of the that kind of first problem that she sees with their is these these bad rulers and mm -hmm. bad priests um, that that is really emerging out of this wound of the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, not being in his diocese, which is right. a widespread problem in Europe at this time. But of course, at the core of the papacy, or excuse me, the core of the at the core of the episcopacy is the papacy, mm -hmm. and for that to be a festering wound, uh, really does have this effect on the rest of the church right so uh a lot of the contention between the city states in italy mm -hmm. and the pope is that uh the italians didn't trust the pope anymore because exactly. he was living in in france and mm -hmm. then i think there had been a series of french uh cardinals who were elected to become pope so it's like well obviously like these people aren't on our side like mm -hmm. they don't really care for us um so there is uh, a lot of uh mis mistrust going on um and then yeah, it kind of seemed like the the state of things was that like every city state was just like there to fend for themselves. And so, I mean, it's if if you start seeing like an alliance start forming with other city states, like you either have to join or start your own. Right. <laughs> um <laughs> yeah. and a lot of the contention was because they didn't like the they didn't they didn't they didn't trust the pope in Avignon and they didn't like what his uh legates were doing mm -hmm. um and like how I, I'm not. I'm not sure all of the political uh, intrigue of like what that looked like, um, but they didn't like that relationship, so they wanted to cut themselves off from uh, the Pope and his authority. Right. And the Pope. I mean, this is one of the major um, problems that you see is that this relationship between the spiritual and the temporal powers mm -hmm. were being um, uh, flipped around, really. So whereas the you have a spiritual power that directs all temporal power tells us what to, tells us lady what to do you know this is the directives giving us clear principles and precepts by which we are to rule you know first our families then kind of arrange our neighborhoods our villages our cities up to the point of the nation um that that is that as soon as the the spiritual power is compromised then it really does become wherever the wind blows for us laity. The temporal power has taken over that position of governance, of setting the precepts, of setting the principles that, that we are going to follow if, if the papacy is not pointing us to the direction of truth, who mm -hmm. is Jesus. And so that's the problem that we see here is that, that the, um, the, the Babylonian captivity of the papacy is really that the power of the papacy is utilized for purely temporal ends. Right. So, for instance, you have 
the, the, the Pope giving his blessing over France's wars with England, mm-hmm. that the Pope is utilizing uh, his power to give more taxes to the king so that he can fight these wars, that he's blessing the bureaucratic expansion of France at this time, uh, that he is ultimately compelled to do this or feels okay doing this because they are because he and his court the pope and his court are starting to enjoy the luxuries of the french palace right and think, also receive their protection like they yeah. they kind of they owe france yeah. <laughs> something uh yeah. to a degree so he's not free and he's not detached um to actually take care of his diocese um yeah. and to take care of the concerns that are his his own. And he also, I mean, he is French, so he has an attachment to his people mm-hmm. and his family. And she calls him out on this. <laughs> right. And, and, and actually, it's such a bad, it's, it's such a clear abuse that even even the cardinals are starting to realize it. And some of them have a, you know, a pricked conscience about it and others don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was one man who, who really did, and he made this prayer uh, to God, a vow saying, if I am to become the next pope, I will move back to Rome. And that was Gregory the Ninth, and so God was setting the occasion for for His return for Catherine to be the one who makes Him ultimately obey His vow. Um, mm-hmm. But we, but I think it was kind of an important point because she does go through and she does rebuke the Pope. Mm-hmm. Uh, she does so in words that are um, unbelievably generous and and really filial. Um, right. But it, I think if we just kind of hear like there was a bad Pope. Uh, who is a monstrous sinner, uh, who is, uh, you know, preferentially treating certain nations over others, certain kings over others, using his power to get money, to enjoy these absurd luxuries uh, that we would just say, yeah, of course you got to call out that guy. I mean, he's he's disobedient to God. He's not fulfilling his vows. Uh, you know, this is this is just a bad man. And she is only ever able, ultimately able, to correct him because she is, first and foremost, obedient to him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, we've talked about this a good bit. Do you want to start yeah, off on that? Yeah, well, um, uh, I mean, I, I I don't think Gregory wasn't the most monstrous of, of popes. I think he was more no. like pathetic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's pretty much what she calls him, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like pretty... <laughs> takes a lot of guts <laughs> to tell the pope that um but she uh like one one of the reasons why catherine is able to have such profound political influence and influence over the pope is because she is so genuine mm. um she understands her place before the pope and she understands that i am his daughter and this is my father. And so I think when she, whenever she writes him, she uses extremely affectionate language. Yeah. She's like, oh, Babo Mio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. <laughs> it's like, Daddy, yeah. <laughs> please come back. Yeah. <laughs> Daddy, come back. Yeah. Uh, and she's just so, I mean, she's she's just so in love with Christ. And she's so in love with the like the church. Like she just wants to see like the healing of the spouse of Christ. Um, and she approaches him with this uh, tenderness and also this humility because at the same time she recognizes that she's nothing. Hmm. Um, and I think that's why people were drawn to her was because she wasn't like putting on airs, like she wasn't pretending to be better than anyone else, even though like people were aware, like this woman is extremely holy. Um, it was clear that she was not moved by anything except for what was absolutely the best for you personally mm-hmm. um and so she's able to say really harsh things in a lot of tenderness because she like really believes them and um like she really loves pope gregory mm-hmm. and you can tell that she's just i mean like her heart is broken on account of him and that's a very different way of approaching someone than just being angry right um, like she, she is like simultaneously mother and daughter to mm. Gregory, and that's the heart from which she corrects him. R- right. I mean, just to give an example to these, what you're saying about him, that she's she's writing this in a different letter to him that um, she um, she writes, he has not had the life of charity in himself. 
she's she's speaking about the pope in these kind of third person language to him actually and has cared only for praise and self-glory and not for the name of god i said say then if he is a prelate he does ill because to avoid falling into disfavor with his fellow creatures that is through self-love in which he is bound by Mm self-indulgence holy justice dies in him for he sees his subjects commit faults and sins and pretends not to see them and fails to correct them. And this is, um, you know, this is almost kind of softening the blow, you know, by kind of depersonalizing this yeah. slightly. But it is him that she's she's speaking of. And, you know, he has this continual language of, oh, Babos, mine, you know, <laughs> sweet Christ on earth, she calls oh, him. Yeah. Follow that sweet Gregory, the great, for all will be possible to you as it was to him. You know, so this is a clear rebuke, but it's something yeah. that's extremely, she's very patient with. Uh, and, and I think that's kind of an important side of all obedience is that um, in in her dialogue with God, this is, um, sorry, to give this a, just a brief introduction at the very end of her life, she calls scribes to come and to record the things that she is hearing from God in her mystical visions, prayer, yeah. in her mystical prayer things. Um and and so she has these these four um, treatises that mm-hmm. develop out of them, and, and ob- the, the dialogue on obedience is uh, quite striking, given that she has now spent the last ten years of her life like telling people what to do. Right, exactly. Yeah, like that's another paradox of Saint Catherine. Um, mm-hmm. Is her. Uh, obedience um and first of all like her obedience to christ but you can see that that's kind of that's that's what she's correcting gregory for in that particular letter like i love that she she really understands his interior life and she understands his weakness Mm. um he has an obligation and an authority Mm -hmm. and so what she's doing is like she's submitting to that and she's asking him to obey his own position Right. Right. Like you need to return to Rome. You need to return to your own diocese. You need to fulfill the vow which you made. Like she's calling him to obedience of his office. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she understands that because he has developed um, like self-love uh, and he hasn't detached himself from things that he has made himself really weak to the whims and influences of other people. But Catherine doesn't have this problem because she's practiced her obedience her whole life. Um, Like going back to the beginning of her life when like she's wrapped up in mystical prayer, this is all she wants to do. She wants to contemplate God uh, on earth forever until she can die, (laughs) go to heaven. (laughs) Um, And then God asks her to do the one thing that she doesn't want to do. Um, and how does she respond? She responds in extreme obedience. She often uses very strong language with this, like slaying self-will. Um, she, yeah, so she she slays her own will to do what she wants in order to submit to God, but that ends up becoming her interior strength because she and the Pope are now in very different positions. So she has this kind of interior freedom because she has slayed her self-will. She's utterly obedient to like her like position and vocation in life and no one can influence her otherwise. And many people were trying to influence her in whatever ways that they wanted her to move in. Um, But because Pope Gregory hadn't been in the practice of obedience to his office, um, he just became interiorly more and more weak. Um, and so he was prey to all of the political intrigues that were going on around him. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, this really fascinating paradox that like it's her radical obedience to Christ, which ends up making her so strong and so influential. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's what allows Gregory to take her seriously. Like she's not abandoning her post in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, she's being utterly obedient, even even to people who like 
mistreat her. Like whenever she was approached by those theologians, those people testing her, mm -hmm. she never acted as if she was above their station. She understood that this is a priest of God. Uh, she understood that this is a, a more learned theologian than I have than I am. Like mm -hmm. she knew she was uneducated and she never pretended like she had more authority. She was always asking for their prayers. She, like, please pray for me that I could be more humble. Right. Um, yeah, she was never, she was never putting on pretension. She was always like, she understood her, her place and she was always uh, obedient. And you could see that when she trusted God and fully placed her obedience in his hand that he ended up taking care of her. He was the one who justified her in front of those theologians. Like he was the one who justified her in front of Gregory. Mm. Um, and so she didn't have to, yeah, yeah, she didn't have to worry about that as much. Right. In her dialogue, I mean, this is kind of crazy. If anybody's read this, that you know this already, that um, it's God speaking, you know? And, and so I'm, I'm going to read a little part of it, she, at some point she asks, um, you know, where is obedience to be found? What's the cause of its loss? And what's a sign that you actually have, have it? it? Yeah. And, and he, God responds, um, look at the first man and you will see the cause which destroyed the obedience imposed on him by me, the eternal father. It was pride, which was produced by self-love and desire to please his companion. And that's exactly what, what mm -hmm. St. Catherine writes in this letter is that you love your life, you love your comforts, you mm -hmm. love people praising you. And as a result, you don't want to actually do your job in reproaching and your, uh, the priests and the rulers mm -hmm. who are now devouring your people. Oh, yeah. And, find. and, uh, and then he goes on and he says, you know, well, where is it found? If you ask me where obedience is to be found, I will reply that you will find it in its completeness in the sweet and amorous word, my only begotten son. And then he says, and the sign that you have this, this virtue, this virtue of, of obedience is patience and impatience is a sign that you have it not. And you will find that this is indeed so when I speak to you so further concerning this virtue. I, you know, and, and I think this is something that um, is such a temptation, you know, for right. us, disobedience today, be, in part because of the form that mass media has created mm -hmm. and uh, that, we that mass media works well on the internet because it actually does demand that we click more because the only way that it's profitable is if we see more ads. And mm -hmm. so therefore we need something that will get us to click more so that we see those ads so that they make more money. And as a result, we don't, we are not, patience is not engendered in us. We mm -hmm. always want to see something more scandalous. So there's mm -hmm. there's a particular formal problem that we have with this today. Um, but it starts to destroy what God later says in this dialogue, the, the wet nurse of patience, which is humility. Mm -hmm. And it, Ruben actually, Slife, who works with us, has, has been really, uh, over, the, over the last couple of years, been a real help to me in this, in this area, especially like with when all the crazy headlines of the Pope come up. Mm -hmm. He's always like, you know, take your time, figure out what actually happened, you know, and, mm -hmm. and starts to kind of break me down. He's, he's doing a pretty <laughs> good job breaking me down, I, uh, to his credit, not mine. But, um, you know, I think that is one of the these things that is just so terribly practical um, that St. Catherine offers us is that right. when she calls out the the Pope for not doing his job of getting rid of the bad rulers, not getting rid of the bad priests, that it has to be governed by this patience yeah. um, that is that is animated by um, humility um, for the sake of obedience. Right. And what's interesting too is like she doesn't try to take on his authority Right. Um, like she doesn't try to enter into his position and mm -hmm. exercise his authority. You can see that she, like she has obedience to the office and obedience to how God wants to work. Um, like God has placed this man in this mm -hmm. position. And, uh, if God can be like trusting and patient, mm -hmm. then I ought to as well. Um, 
all you can do is really lean into like the actual authority that you have. Um, and she does it with a lot of fiery passion. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah. yeah, she ends up being very, very influential. Um, yeah. Should we talk about the Crusades now? Yeah. <laughs> so this is, you know, I think it, it, it um, starts to, well, sorry, let me kind of f- summarize what, what just happened really quick and move on to the Crusades. Because I think the, her, the two of the three things that she found to be her objectives, the Pope reforming um, the prelates and rulers alike, mm-hmm. and his return to Rome are, are really intimately related, right? Um, she sees that because of his sin, that wound festers, causing more sin in others. She sees that he has uh, pretty much surrendered his spiritual power um, by trying to act like temporal powers. He's living in a palace like the king's living in a palace. He's extending his bureaucracy like the king's extending his bureaucracy. He's living uh, this this luxury and for self-benefit uh, rather than the benefit of others, just like the king, the tyrant, is living for his own benefit and not the benefit of others. And that the the way in which he can flee that occasion of sin is by returning to what he really needs to be doing, which is ruling the church from his see in Rome. Um, and so this is this end of the Avignon captivity, you know, does happen because she goes to him one day and, you know, they're kind of fighting and he's wrestling and doesn't really know, you know, he knows that he's supposed to go back, but doesn't want to. And who is this peasant woman and whatever. Um, and, and finally she just, she's given this, um, this knowledge from God of this private promise that Gregory had made while he's still oh, yeah, a cardinal. That's right. That he promised God that he would, if he was elected Pope, he would return to Rome. And she says, but you've already promised this. You know, he had not told a soul. <laughs> and yet God has given her the knowledge that he made this, this private vow. Um, and he's shaken in his boots at that point. And, you know, not long afterwards, he's, he's gathered up everything in his, his cardinals and, they're heading back to Rome. Um, um, but this third thing, the uh, Crusades. The Crusades. Unless, well, yeah. there was um, uh, a couple paragraphs from Sigurd Unset that I think kind of ties in, like why why is it that um, like politics and religion are so like wrapped up in mm. each other? And like okay. why is it she really cares? Uh, and like why she would really care about the Crusades? Um, so... Onset writes that it had gradually come about that Italian and European politics was one of the chief concerns of the Seraphic Virgin of Siena. The artificial divide of religion and politics did not exist for the people of the Middle Ages. If they thought over the matter at all, they were completely aware that all the problems concerning the community, good or bad government, the welfare or misery of the people, are in the final instance religious problems. The fundamental question is, what do we believe a man to be? What is it he needs, first and foremost, so that he may be in a position to attain all his secondary needs, peace, justice, security, satisfactory relationships with his fellow man? Catherine never had any doubts about the answer. A man is nothing by himself, has nothing from himself. His existence is in his creator, and everything he is and owns is from his creator. Uh, The love of a selfish man is nothing. Truth escapes between his hands. His wisdom will show itself to be foolishness, his justice injustice. And in the end, a series of disappointments and mistakes will lead him to hell, to the devil who is a spirit of disappointment and barrenness. And then uh, quotes the psalm, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. Catherine knew the truth of these words. So, that's why she's so concerned about uh, getting the Pope to return to Rome. That's why she's concerned about like uh, like making peace between the Italian city-states. And that's why mm. she's concerned about the Crusades. Because another big thing that's going on is that um, she sees that, I mean, like Italy, I mean, like it's a, it's a Catholic uh, people. Like mm-hmm. we're all a part of the same body. And she sees the body of Christ just tearing itself apart from the inside. Um, like like infighting between these city-states, disloyalty to the Pope. um, And the the Pope, uh, especially when uh, Urban ends up taking the papal throne after Gregory, um, he ends up doing reform, but he ends up doing it 
too harshly uh, to the point where like he also is kind of like adding to the tears in the body of Christ. Like there's mm-hmm. some times where you just need to like accept the best that people can offer you. But he is just so concerned about being like offended by people. And he's like, no, like we're going to slam you into the ground. Thank you very much. Right. Instead of just <laughs> accepting uh, their like. Yeah. Asking for forgiveness. Um, so. Yeah. If Gregory was a coward, then. Um, Urban just went overboard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so what she sees going on is, uh, yeah, like the body of Christ tearing itself apart uh, in corruption within the church, in like corruption in, in politics. And so part of her call for the Crusades is to how about we actually direct like yeah. this violence towards places where it really matters, where the infidels are encroaching on our territory. Um, and it's not because like, I don't know, like St. Catherine was just like racist or something. Like she, <laughs> I, I, I feel like people just like always forget about this, about the crusades. Like that, like there was an actual like danger to Christendom. Like, I don't know, like people just like have It's such this... an embarrassing thing. Like, oh man, what a bl- blot in our history, the crusades, you know, meanwhile, like women are being slaughtered, kids are being enslaved, mm-hmm. and people think that it's like I know, a lot. It's, I mean, it's it, crazy. It's not like like there's a bunch of hippies on the other side, like just like perfectly calm and and and, and peaceful. Like it was a, it was a real like threat that was like slowly like moving into uh, Christendom, mostly in the the uh, eastern. Um, half of christianity mm-hmm. Byzan- byzantine the byzantine empire yeah. and so um if i'm remembering correctly that uh part part of the call to the crusades was just to kind of like help heal the divide between eastern and western christianity absolutely here's our eastern brothers and sisters being torn apart um yep. by the infidels and so her directive was like how about we stop destroying ourselves because this is useless how about we go and actually help members of the body of christ who are like dying on this like outward front mm-hmm. let's go there <laughs> yeah almost you know it's a really pastoral thing where she kind of like redirects the fighting spirit right <laughs> you know and um let me let me read some of this uh she says no that she writes this to a soldier Actually, she goes, now my soul desires that you should change your way of life and take the pay and the cross of Christ crucified, you and all your followers and companions, so that you may be Christ's company to march against the infidel dogs (laughs) who possess our holy place, where rested the sweet primal truth. That's such a beautiful name. The sweet primal truth and bore death and pains for us. I beg you then, gently in Christ Jesus, that since God and also our Holy Father have ordered a crusade against the infidels, and you take such pleasure in war and fighting, you should not make war against (laughs) Christians anymore, for this is a wrong to God. But go against the infidels, for it is a great cruelty that we who are Christians and members bound in the body of Holy Church should persecute one another. We are not to do so, but to rise with perfect zeal and to uplift ourselves above every evil thought. No, one one thing that needs to be said about this, just as kind of a general apologetic in the Crusades, is that mm-hmm. that perfect zeal is is something that's uh, needs to be taken seriously. And when she says that she gently exhorts him, that she means this very sincerely. Um, later on, she has a vision of not just her entering into the sight of Christ. I mean, this is but but other Christians, and even the infidels. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is her desire. And, and there was a great um, article that was written, we should, we'll tag it on to into the notes, um, about the call to the Crusades as being something that was done as an act of love, not just to the love of fellow Christians, but to the love of the infidel. Um, one thing that you could kind of think about this is that um, obviously if someone is hurting comes, breaks into your house and s- starts beating up your family, that you're going to have to restrain or kill him. Mm-hmm. And so on a larger scale, that same truth applies. But within Christianity, you can never kill in such a way as to hate the one that you're killing. 
that your desire can can still only be for his good that that is a universal truth of christian charity that demands even in these kind of tight spots you could say right well i think what's interesting is that um like she she doesn't have a you can tell it's not that she hates the infidel that she's saying that you mm-hmm. should go uh, she loves war against dogs. them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, she she also refers to members of the clergy as infidels. Like I underlined a couple places in right. her letters where she like refers to members of the church as also being infidels and gives them worse names. Like uh, my favorite is incarnate demon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, she's creative. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, like her, she she just. She she has a vision where she understands um, what what's most important, um, like or just like she she like understands like what is the most true reality, um, and she. Uh, I'm trying to think of where I went, where I was going with that. Um, and it's just it's just different if you if you actually really believe that the best possible thing for someone is to go to heaven death starts to look very different to you um and you can see that in the way that she like uh was approaching the the two criminals that you were talking about who were being dragged through the streets like her like social justice cry wasn't like give them mercy like her primary concern was that these people go to heaven yeah and so um, she wasn't there, like, to completely, like, upend, like, the social, uh, like, order. Her concern was about the souls of these persons. And, um, like, death for her was an advantage. Like, this is something that she, like, desired for herself. Like, she was very excited to die, especially at the end of her life. Yeah. <laughs> like, she just wanted to be with Christ. Um, and I think for us, when we haven't, uh, like, really been convinced um of like what is the ultimate good then i don't it just it kind of reorders and like shifts things and even her understanding of what's going on um with like the wars in 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 christendom and outside of it it just kind of shifts like her primary concern is really the soul right um and not like merely with like ending bloodshed like what she wants is souls returning to jesus christ and she wants to end bloodshed and so far as that brings souls back to Christ yes. and so far as it heals the body. Right. You know, when we have a major obsession with, today with social justice, uh, but one of the major predicaments with it, like ma- like root problems with it, is that it is attempt to wrong injustices to humanity or mm-hmm. to men, which is such a depersonalized way of thinking about people. Mm, yeah. Whereas when it pertains to Christianity, it's not a general uh, humankind that we're interested in because humankind, a love of humankind is kind of a contradiction. You cannot love an abstraction. Right. You cannot love a generality. You can only love a person. And so when she, when we're trying to understand St. Catherine here and when we're trying to understand our own political dispositions, it has to be one that's governed by a person and that person's ultimate end, which is found in God. And so the political change that we need is to, again, identify where that singular person is and what they need mm-hmm. uh, to to fulfill what they have been created to do. And so when there's this, um, even these general calls that she's saying, like we need to turn to the Crusades, it's because there is a specific problem. And because mm-hmm. there are, uh, you know, really this this uh, tsunami of letters that are coming out of uh, the, the Middle East of saying, here are the injustices, here are mm-hmm. the wrongs, uh, calls coming out from from Eastern patriarchs who feel all but abandoned by the West and saying, mm-hmm. you know, here's the descriptions of our people being massacred. You know, th- if if you are failing us, then you are failing your brothers and sisters in Christ. Mm-hmm. And again, these are, you might say, because they are um, calls that an entire nation needs to adhere to, does not make them less specific mm-hmm. in, in what needs to be done. And the orientation 
of going off to fight in love and as an act of love is still the thing that governs um, her call. Like that, that we can't, she says at a different point to some soldier named William uh, in her letters that, um, that one must stop fighting, purify himself, and then go mm-hmm. fight again. Mm-hmm. That we can't just use this, like, ah, this habit of, of chopping people's head off. Oh, as, yeah. I mean, she... redirecting she, that. <laughs> she, she understood that if you, like, are entering into war with, like, all these, these vices, that you'll end up doing more damage to your soul, which is why she, like, tells him to, like, stop and purify his mm-hmm. attitudes. Like, why, why is it that you're really um, entering into this kind of warfare? Like, mm-hmm. is it just for selfish gain? Because then... Uh, yeah, if that's if that's if that's your end, then you're going to end up making excuses for more and more atrocities in war, which did yeah. happen with the Crusades. Yep. Um, Don't pierce your soul with the end of your sword. Yeah, that sort of thing. Well, I um, yeah, I think for anybody that's kind of still squirmish about the Crusades, I think that um, an entrance point into that is just thinking about injustices in general, mm-hmm. um, and then being able to from there realize the greater uh, impact of what it, it what political body we actually are building up you know mm-hmm. that it is first and foremost the body of the baptized yeah and I, I think she was also aware that um like if the muslims like gain like influence and control more more land like when they take over um like that changes <laughs> i mean that affects souls like mm-hmm. it means that like entering into the Christian life is no longer like easy. It's something like arduous and it's something persecuted. Yeah. Um, you're going to be influenced in different ways. So she was seeing like how like, yeah, like people's salvation was on the mm-hmm. line. Um, and that was, that was her major concern. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think we can see that just very generally in terms of a, sh- a continually shifting um, government today. It's more and more obviously uh, post and anti-Christian, and you can see, you know, you've probably seen this in a number of um, people that they were uh, had a different vision about like what marriage was, for instance, until Obergefell in 2015, mm-hmm, or right. a different opinion of uh, of of the you know natural uh, creation of man and woman that mm-hmm. God created them until there's transgender laws that were introduced or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, that that the that the it governmental, sh- yeah, really does start to shape the way that we think about the world. Mm-hmm. Um, because there is some claim to authority um, and truth-telling that, mm-hmm. that someone above us, <laughs> that we, we tend to think that they have. And we also, yeah. we, we tend to conform to the patterns in which we live our lives. Mm-hmm. And so if this is like the, the structures and beliefs in which like mass society is moving, then mm-hmm. I'm going to be influenced in that way yeah. too. Which, I mean, you can, so she has this concerned uh with the muslims but she also has this concern with the church itself like well this is why it's so important to like root out corruption within the church so it's not like she's less harsh yeah um like probably all like the i mean like the worst she ever like calls them is like infidel docs like that's it but not (laughs) incarnate demons oh my gosh you know she reserves that for the catholics so those are those are for the special cardinals (laughs) um Um, well you know we should probably come to an end but I, i wanted to read this prayer which is the best prayer of all time no it's not but it's pretty good it it is it is the best prayer of all time you heard it here first folks (laughs) let's pray this in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen this is from saint catherine in your nature eternal godhead i shall come to know my nature and what is my nature boundless love it is fire because you are nothing but a fire of love and you have given humankind a share in this nature for by the fire of love you created us and so with all other people and every created thing you made them out of love oh ungrateful people what nature has your god given you his very own nature you are not ashamed to cut yourself off from such a noble thing through the guilt of deadly sin oh eternal trinity my sweet love you light give us light you wisdom give us wisdom you supreme strength strengthen us today eternal god let our cloud be dissipated so that we may perfectly know and follow your truth and truth with a free and a simple heart 
God, come to our assistance. Lord, make haste to help us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Catherine. Pray for us. Till next time. Peace. Thank <laughs> you.